are here today talking to Carrie, uh, the personal finance blogger behind Money in Your Tea. And she's also an economist and a mother of four children and has firsthand experience of not only opening RESPs, but also drawing down from them. So today we're talking about how to invest in an RESP as well as the drawdown. So I'm super excited to talk about this because there's not a lot of information out there and Carrie has experience that she's going to share with us. So welcome, Carrie. Thank you. So yeah, so I'm uh, married and we have four kids. My eldest is turning 22 today on the day we're recording this. So that's kind of crazy that uh, I'm the parent of an actual adult. Um, And uh, she's finishing her fourth year in university right now. Um, My second is turning 20 this year. And um, he's in second year university. And then I have one in high school and one in senior elementary. So uh, we've been through all of these stages of setting up your RESP and investing in it for years. And now for the two eldest, we're in the drawdown phase. And for the eldest um, in wrapping up that plan and closing it. So that is a great setup um, for my first question as far as because you have children of a very broad um, age spectrum. Did you set up individual RESPs or did you have a family RESP for all of them? Yeah, we set up separate RESPs for each of them because it just seemed more logical to me. So especially there's a nine-year age spread between my eldest and my youngest. So the way we invest in for each of those kids is different because for me, as they got closer and closer to post-secondary, I wanted to lock in all of the gains that we'd made and the, the capital that we'd invested so that we wouldn't be risking that in the event of a market downturn so close to post-secondary. Um, whereas for my youngest, um, she was only in grade four when my eldest started university. So uh, for her, you know, she had lots of time to really be invested in equities, which, you know, I mean, the stock market is risky. It goes up, it goes down over longer periods of time, it goes up. And so it just made more sense to us to invest for the needs of each children specifically, rather than having it all in one um, pot and trying to figure it all out. Yeah, that's uh, my little ones are closer in age. And so we actually did a family RESP. I don't know how that decision is going to play out in the long run, but that's kind of where we went with that. So just different things. There's definitely advantages Mm -hmm. and disadvantages to both. Now, investing, you can do a self-managed RESP, right? You don't need to have an advisor. You can kind of do that all yourself. How did you feel because you were managing four different ones at different age kind of ranges? How was that for you? When we started investing, um, course, it was 22 years ago, ETFs and self-managed DIY investing wasn't as big a thing as it is now. And we weren't as familiar with it. So we started off with investing through our bank and we used broad market mutual funds and we put money in and then gains were just automatically reinvested. And that was very easy for us. Uh, at that period of time. As we got more savvy with our own investments and DIY investing for our uh, retirement funds, we wanted to move those RESPs over uh, to be uh, self-managed as well. And so we did that a number of years ago now. And it's pretty much the same as when you're investing for your retirement fund in terms of how you manage your DIY investing. So my next question is, how does the age of your children impact your investing strategy. So you talked a little bit about equities. Um, How does that kind of your asset allocation or how you're investing change as your children grow up? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is really the key because when you're investing for your retirement, you have such a long time horizon. You know, you start your RRSP when you're 
in your early 20s, hopefully, or now at TFSA, that wasn't an option when I was in my early 20s. And then you're investing for over 40 years if you have a typical retirement age. And then once you retire, you're looking at 20 or more years of retirement. So you're going to see a lot of market fluctuation in that time. Even in your retirement, you can expect to see two or three business cycles in terms of your investments. Whereas your education fund, you have basically 18 years from the time they're born until they graduate high school. And then only three or four years to draw down those investments, assuming they just do an undergraduate degree and they don't go back for graduate school, which, you know, you really can't plan on that because even if your child starts university or college thinking they're going to go on to uh, graduate school, you know, their plans can change because they're still figuring out what they want to do uh, with their lives. So for me, I mean, everybody has to invest in the way they feel comfortable with. And I know not everybody will agree with this, but for me, um, we really wanted to concentrate on having enough in our children's uh, education funds rather than as much as we could. By the time they got to sort of senior elementary and early high school, we were starting to move a lot of those investments in equity into more bond funds and some GICs. And then by the time they finished high school, it was pretty much completely GICs. And this actually, I was quite glad of this because uh, my son, who's in second year university right now, he was in grade 12 in the spring of 2020, which as you remember, at the beginning of the COVID crisis, the stock market plummeted like 20% within about a month. And fortunately, it came back pretty quickly, but we didn't know that that was going to happen. So if he was graduating two months later and his uh, education fund had dropped by 20% and stayed low, like that would have been really hard to manage because you can't really say to your 18-year-old, well, just put off going to university for three or four years until the market recovers because you know they want to keep that timeline. Whereas with your retirement fund, if you're retiring and your stocks have taken a hit. You could delay your retirement for a couple of years or or work around that a bit easier than you can in your education fund. Yeah. And I've seen some people talk about like once your child hits 10, then converting like 10% into bonds every year. So by the time they're 18, you've got like 80% in bonds and 10, 20% in equities sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys follow like a rule of thumb with that or you just kind of went with your gut and kind of converted as you went? Yeah, we did follow a little bit of a rule of thumb like that. What are some common mistakes to avoid when investing within an RESP? Well, I think you do need to keep that time horizon in mind and invest for your child's needs. But the really big thing that I would avoid with RESPs is those group plans or scholarship plans. So if you go to trade shows like the home show or the baby show or whatever, you'll see these people with their little booth and they're really pushing these plans. But basically you're signing a contract that commits yourself to contributing a certain amount of money to these plans on a fixed schedule and your funds get pooled with everybody else's and the fees for that plan is a lot higher than DIY investing or even going with a managed investing plan elsewhere. And if you miss a payment, like when you when your child is literally, you think you're going to be committed to investing on a regular plan, but you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, you know, maybe the house needs a new roof and you have big expenses one year, or maybe you're laid off from your job and 
your finances take a hit for a couple of years and trying to make those payments can really be difficult. And if you're committed to this plan and you start skipping payments, you could lose everything. You could end up with only your contribution back and lose all of the grant and and all of the income that that's made. And that can really impact your child's ability to go to post-secondary in the way that they would like to. And I think the key to the RESP is the grant money, right? Even if you got zero return, you're still getting that's right. a return from the grant, right? <laughs> so that's really important. So you've set it up, we're investing, I've got a plan. Um, at what age did you start thinking about the eventual drawdown? So is it like when you started converting to bonds or when did you start making those plans for the drawdown? We didn't specifically plan exactly how that would be drawn down until they really started post-secondary. It was more in the high school years, it was more about how to invest in order to protect the money that was already in the plan rather than how we were going to draw it down. I guess as they got closer to post-secondary, it was more about uh, how much was in the plan and what what kind of post-secondary options we could afford with the plan. So for us, that's, they could choose any post-secondary institution in the province, whether they wanted to live at home and save more money or go away to school and and live in residence or rent an apartment. Those were both feasible for us. Something more expensive like international uh, education, we wouldn't have had enough in our fund to cover the costs of that. Okay, so now you've got the fund, your children, they've just graduated high school, we're, you know, we're accepted into post-secondary, we're ready to go in the fall. Let's talk about the drawdown. What are the tax implications of that? Let's start from a big overarching tax implications. So the money that you contribute as parents or grandparents, that's already being taxed. So you can't claim that in your income tax refund on the same way that you do with your RRSP contribution. So that money has already been taxed and it will never be taxed again because you've already paid tax on that. The The grant money and the income that the fund makes, so that's going to be interest or dividends or capital gains, that will be taxed, but that will be taxed to your child. Typically, students don't tend to make a lot of money because maybe they're working a part-time job or they're only working in the summer. And even if they are working throughout the year, they tend to be closer to minimum wage. So it's at a lower tax rate than if it were taxed in your hands. So that's good news that that's taxed to them. The one big thing to keep in mind is that we think of education in terms of the school year. So September to April would be a typical eight-month program or to June or to August, depending on whether they go to school in a summer term. But of course, for taxation, it's calendar year. So you have to think January to December in terms of taking out your funds in a tax effective way rather than first year, second year, third year, fourth year. So if your child, let's say they have a co-op term in the second term of second year and the first term of third year and they go to school in the middle, they're earning money for two semesters in that calendar year, even though it's only once in second year and once in third year. You'll want to concentrate which pool of money you're withdrawing from so that they don't get pushed into the next tax bracket by having too much of the grant and income money on a year when their earnings might be a little bit higher. Yeah, that's some good planning and then some good thought. And I think I'm just like, to me, that first thought is like, okay, so maybe you pay your tuition in parts, like first semester in one calendar year, second semester in second. So it's not all showing up in one year as well. So this is what I know. You can draw out your RESP for eligible expenses. Can you talk about that, the actual act of drawing it down, getting that money out? Do you approve expenses? How does that all work? So I'm going to go through a few definitions because that's going to help us. So the subscriber is you, the parents or grandparents who are putting money in. 
The beneficiary is the child who's going to be the future student. Contribution is the amount of money that you, the subscribers or parents, are putting in on a regular basis or irregular, as the case may be. The grant is the 20% that the government matches. And uh, I believe there are some province that also will do a top up on that, or if you're low income, you can be eligible for a little bit more as well. And then the income is the interest, the dividends, and the capital gains. Your contribution is called the post-secondary education payments, or PSE. The grant and the income combined makes up the education assistance payment, or EAP. Post-secondary education payments, your contributions are the part that's already been taxed. The grant and income, the EAP, is the part that will be taxed to your child. You withdraw from those buckets separately. So you have to tell your bank or your investment company which of those buckets or a combination from which buckets you're withdrawing from every time you take money out. In the your child's first term at school, there's a limit of $5,000 of the EAP funds that they can withdraw in the first 13 weeks. There's no limit on the amount of the contribution funds, the PSE, that you can withdraw in those 13 weeks. And after those 13 weeks, you can draw as much as you want from either of those pots. I mean, in your account, it all looks like one amount of money, but the bank will still think of those as being separate. And the government certainly thinks of those as being separate. To withdraw funds, first of all, they're going to need proof that your child is in school, either full-time or part-time, and that it's a qualifying post-secondary institution. That form from the school needs to have your student's name and the program name, the enrollment for the current year or the current term. And so some examples would be an invoice for tuition that's on the school letterhead or an enrollment letter from the registrar's office or a registration letter from the registrar's office or an offer of admission from the registrar's office. Something that shows your child is going to school at this school this year. And then you're going to contact the bank or your investment institution and say, I'd like to withdraw $5,000 of EAP and $3,000 from PSE. And I'd like those to withdraw those funds from GIC number 12345, or uh, I'd like to sell investments in this equity fund or whatever you're selling in order to get that cash. And I'd like to transfer those funds to my child's savings account, which is number 54321. So it's a lot, a, a lot of steps that you have to think about there in terms of which part of money you're drawing down from, what investment you're selling in order to get those funds, and then that it goes to your child. You can actually have the um, PSE part, the contribution part, come to yourself if you want, but the grant and income must go to your child. And from my understanding, it is a better idea, obviously, to try to liquidate that EAP bucket first, because that is the one that has better, bigger tax implications when you have to close the account and things like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you want to do it smartly because they are taxed on it. So you don't want to draw it all down in the same calendar year, but you do want to draw that EAP down before they graduate, for sure. You actually have about six months after graduation to finish drawing down your RESP. But by that point, hopefully they're working in their field and uh, their income will be a little bit higher. So you do want to try and draw down that EAP portion by closer to the end or middle. Now, when you talk about the two separate buckets... Now, it's all pulled together when you have your RESP with your bank or wherever you have it or your brokerage. Do they keep track of which is which or do you need to keep track of which bucket is which? It's more conceptual. So it's not like saying this GIC is an EAP and that 
equity is the contribution fund. It's all the money can be invested mixed together. And it is invested mixed together. But just this concept that you've invested, we can check the math, but I think it's 36,000 investment will get you your maximum 7,200 in grant contribution. So let's say you've put in the 36,000, that that 36,000 somewhere uh, is your contribution money. 7,200 is the grant money. And the rest is income. So really all you need to keep track of is your contributions, right? So if you're not maxing out, whatever you contributed, just kind of keep track of that and know that can take it out anytime. It's already been taxed. There's no trick to that money, essentially. Uh, it's the other stuff that you have to be a little bit more cognizant of. Now, do you need to prove expenses or can you just pull out what you see fit? Or do you, like, are you given receipts? How does that working? You can take up to about 20, 23,000 per calendar year of EAP funds. That's the grant plus income without having to prove expenses. And you can take out as much as you want in the contribution funds um, without having to prove expenses. And that amount is indexed to inflation. So, so you should probably check with your bank or investment institution if you're getting close to the amount, just to make sure that uh, you're not going over. You do not have to prove your expenses, thank goodness, because can you imagine trying to track every time your child orders pizza? That would be crazy. It can, and it can be used for anything sort of tangentially related to education. So the directly related things, obviously, like tuition and books and school supplies, you can also buy yourself a new computer or a new cell phone, because I mean, really, those are essential to being in school. You can also use it for your living expenses, so such as living in residence or rent, food costs, clothing, public transportation. If you own a car, then you can use it towards your insurance. Uh, if you rent an apartment, you can use it to buy furniture and uh, kitchen supplies and whatever. And you can also use it for special needs if you need like a note taker or any specialized equipment for supporting your education as well. It's pretty broad what you can use it for is what you're saying. So that's good. And you don't need to prove expenses. Yeah, that's right. And thank goodness you don't have to track all that. I think that was my first th thought. I was like, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to keep track of all these receipts and how it works. Now, are there any drawdown? So you've had some experience drawing down, obviously. Have you? Are there any kind of best practices or tips that you can offer to anyone as they get into the drawdown phase? Well, I'm going to say actually my first best practice would be to fund your own retirement fund before you fund your child's education fund. It's so hard to do that because we look at the RESP and we think 20% free money. Like that's hard to turn down free government money, but it's so important to really take care of your own needs first, because if your child graduates with a fully paid for education, but then they have to support you in your senior years because you haven't taken care of yourself first, they're not going to appreciate that. There's a lot of ways that kids can really make choices so that they can graduate with little or no debt. So if you don't save in an RESP or if you don't save very much, your child can go to school locally and live at home or live with a family member in the town close to their school of choice, or they can have a part-time job or a great summer job that will help support them. And even if they do have a little bit of debt, they've got all their adult life in order to, I mean, I guess they eventually have to pay it down, but uh, they've got a long period of time where they can deal with that. Whereas um, by the time your kids graduate university, you could be in your 50s and you don't have that much more time to fund your own retirement. And I'm going to say a middle ground for that best practice. If you just can't not invest in that RESP because you want that 20%, your contributions can come back to you. In the end, you could keep that, let's say you fully fund it up to that $36 thousand dollars in order to get the matching grant. You could keep that 36,000 for yourself 
and then put that into your retirement fund and just give the grant and the income to your child for their school and have it kind of like a hybrid. You know, you've lost out on all those years of gains for yourself, but at least you're getting something back to help fund your retirement before you actually do retire. Yeah. And I think that's a great tip. And also one person told me like kids can get student loans. You can't get a student loan for your retirement. Right. So obviously we want to avoid debt and things like that, but there's no other option for that. So at least, you know, university age students, there are some options there. So I think that's a really good point. A second best practice, I would say um, that you should know if you do end up having to skip a year or two of contributions, like let's say you get laid off and you just can't contribute for a couple of years because you have less income or you have higher expenses for something, you can catch up. So you can catch up for one extra year at a time. So each year you can put in 2500 to get the matching grant of 20% of $500. So for one year, you could put in $5,000 and get a $1,000 matching grant. And then you can do it again the next year. And you can keep doing that until you've caught up for all of those years that you have missed. That's something I think that's uh, really important. You're not, you don't have to scrounge around and try and find this money or lose it. You can catch up. Yeah. And what, I mean, realistically, it's like whatever you can put in is still going to be a bonus. Even if you're not getting the match, if you, even if you're putting a hundred dollars mm-hmm. in a year, you're still getting that, you know, 20% bonus on that hundred dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And it's time to grow. Your kids have 18 years um, for that money to grow. When, so you're, you're, you've got now a plan that you're looking to draw down. So as soon as your children, you have two new post-secondary entered post-secondary, were you at that point now starting to think, okay, how do we get to the point where we can liquidate this or get ready to close this account? Like, are you looking to close the account now that one of your children is post-secondary almost done? Or are you going to look to keep it open for them? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. So my eldest is uh, finishing her fourth year as of this month as we're recording it. So that's kind of crazy that she's gotten that big. Yeah. And she lived at home for the first three years. This year, she has an apartment closer to school and you know, being more adult. And so she still had quite a bit left in her fund. But now this year, she's renting an apartment. So obviously, her expenses are higher. So we're withdrawing more of it. And we've also drawn that down completely as of the beginning of this term, so that as she graduates this month, there's nothing left in that account. You do have about six months after they graduate in order to draw it down. And of course, if it's not drawn down, You can just keep it there in case your child goes back for graduate studies or some other change in their their plan for their life. And you you have, I think, until up to age 36 or so. There's no rush to try and use that up if you really can't do it. You can also transfer that to another RESP if you have a younger child that still has contribution room. And the contribution portion of the fund's Uh, You can take out without penalty and use it for other purposes. If you really can't use it for school, the government will want to take back their grant, whatever's remaining. So again, you want to try and use up that EAP portion earlier in the process if you can. And uh, there may be penalties as well that come out of the income plus grant portion. Is there anything else you wish you knew about the RESP and about that drawdown kind of strategy phase that you didn't know before and now you've kind of gone through it and you're like, I wish I would have known that before that. Yeah, that's a good question. We've always transferred all of the amounts, the contribution portion and the 
grant an income portion directly to our kids and then they pay for their tuition and so on out of that. But a friend of mine, she keeps the contribution portion herself and makes her son come for family dinner every week and gives him an allowance out of that. So so that's one way of uh, making sure her son keeps coming home to visit on a regular basis. So I thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> what great. I, I love little like tricks like that the parents have. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think that's awesome. Yeah, that was pretty funny when I found that out. This has been super informative. Like you said, no, not many people talk about this drawdown, about the planning and things like that. And I think this is really important. Um, so thank you for sharing all that. If people want to connect with you, learn more about you, maybe they have some questions, how can they do that? Sure. My blog is moneyinyourtea.com and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest with the same money in your tea. Awesome. So again, thank you to Carrie. Great. Thanks so much for having me.